0: analyzing in depth, because this is a major development um, that has
1: economic implications in addition to the horrible human suffering. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Tuesday, March 22nd.
2: That was friend of the show, Mohamed El-Aryan. He's the CEO of PIMCO. I believe they are the world's largest private bond fund. Speaking to Bloomberg News at the top. Today on the show, we talk about the economics of the crisis in Japan. But first, from Jacob Goldstein, the Planet Money Indicator.
3: Sir. Today's Planet Money Indicator, $39 billion.
1: I know that one because uh, we were talking about it this morning. That is how much AT&T is going to pay to buy Planet Money.
3: Yes. It is a big day for Planet Money. Our listeners won't notice any difference. We'll continue to cover the wonders of the cellular phone industry. Um, right. No. So it's, it's how much AT&T has offered to pay for T-Mobile, which is not quite as big of a deal as them buying Planet Money. But it's a really big deal. And obviously, you know, if you've got a cell phone, you want to know. Does this mean my cell phone bill is going to go up? Am I about to get screwed?
1: Because the danger is that when you have mergers like this, you're losing competition. And if you have something that's close to a monopoly, they can just charge whatever they want. They could start charging more for cell phone plans.
3: Yeah, and you know, that's why we have antitrust laws. That's why the government is allowed to block this kind of deal if they want to, basically. And to understand how the government is going to think through this this process, I called Harry First. He's an antitrust expert at NYU Law School. And what he said is you can basically think of this deal in two ways. You can look at the country as one big market or you can look at the country as a bunch of different little markets in cities all around the country.
2: Now, since I sit next to you, Jacob, I heard you working on this this morning, and it kind of got me obsessed with all these tiny cell phone companies all over the U.S., which I did not realize existed. I came up with a, a lovely list. Here's Appalachian Wireless, the cell provider for Eastern Kentucky. There's Alaska Digital, Alaska Wireless, Alaska Communication Systems. My personal favorite in Alaska, the Arctic Slope Telephone Association Cooperative <laughs> and, and Cellular m-
3: System. Let me just jump in here because I can hear you're still only on A. And right. I <laughs> think we get the idea. And, and AT&T would actually be very happy to hear you rattling off this list. This is how they want us to think of this market. Because they say, if you look around the country, in almost every city, there are a bunch of different wireless providers. Yes, yeah, some of them are little, but, you know, if you're a customer in that city, you still have choices. There is still competition. And, you know, so, okay, there are a few places where the competition is more limited, and AT&C says, in those cities, we'll spin off some of our business so that there is competition. We'll sell it to Appalachian Wireless. Yeah. Or we'll sell it to Cincinnati Bell Wireless. One more. Or we'll
2: sell it to Cricket Communications. Thank you.
3: (laughs) Yes. And this actually first told me this is how mergers often work. You know, the government looks city by city. You see it, for example, with airlines where they'll sort of work out a deal with the government where they're like, okay, you know, if we're too big in Newark, we'll
1: get rid of some of our gates there so that it's still competitive in Newark. All right, but if you think of it nationally, though, right? Nationally, what do you have? You have AT&T, you have Verizon, and then there's Sprint still, it, right? It falls off a lot, right? Basically, if this deal goes through nationally, there will be
3: two gargantuan cell phone companies, Verizon and AT&T. Between the two of them, they'll have more than 200 million subscribers. Remember, entire country, we have something like 310 million people. so that includes babies. Includes <laughs> babies, and a few others without cell phones, presumably, right? So an incredibly concentrated market in two companies, if you think about this nationally. And on this level, first it say, yeah, the market may get less competitive. That would mean, you know, people could pay more for cell phone service. There's less incentive to
1: innovate. All, all the reasons you want competition. And, and the other concern there, right, is that when Apple comes out with its new phone and it wants to strike an exclusive deal, uh, it's not going to go with Appalachia Wireless, right? It's go with one of these two big ones, and then they don't, really ha- they don't have a lot of choice. So another fear might be that you have less competition there.
3: Yeah, that's definitely another side of the market and, and another valid way to look at
2: it. Thank you so much, Jacob. I'd also like to thank Pine Cellular, serving McCurtain, LaFleur, and Latimer counties in southeastern Oklahoma for all of their cellular communication needs. <laughs> thank you, Jacob. Thanks. All right. Now on to today's show. The crisis in Japan, of course, is primarily a horrible human tragedy. Thousands of people lost their lives. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people are right now suffering and scared. And we have heard lots of great coverage here on NPR. We've read great articles about it. But- Here at Planet Money, our job is to cover the economics.
1: And many of our listeners have written in asking questions about it, like, um, what does the earthquake, the tsunami, the fear of a nuclear meltdown, what does all that mean for the global economy, for Japan's economy? It's a human tragedy. It's a natural disaster. Is it also potentially a global economic disaster? We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking
2: about disasters and crises in poor and middle-income countries like Haiti, Egypt, Libya. But... How does a tragedy like this look when you're the third
1: richest country in the world? First off, we learned that the earthquake and the tsunami are causing at least some short-term economic disruptions.
4: My name is Shinichi S H I N I. (laughs)
2: Shinichi Sato works at Hino Motors. They're the largest manufacturer of commercial trucks and buses in Japan, although... Shinichi is based in the U.S. They also make axles for a variety of Toyota vehicles. He says Hino Motors, they have been
4: dramatically affected, at least in the short term. In Japan, they shut down the plant, a uh, whole plant, for last week, so one week. And uh, today and uh, tomorrow, uh, they will shut down also. So they shut down
1: all their plants for one week, and it looks like today and tomorrow also.
4: yes. Uh, this is not only Hino but uh, all the uh, automobile company uh, I think same situation right now,
1: and why are they shut down?
4: because uh, many of the parts uh, come from uh, that area and also right now uh, due to the power shortage, they cannot operate the plant whole day. Can you give me an
1: example of a part? That was manufactured in the earthquake region. That is now difficult to get.
4: Oh, many, so many, so many parts. Uh, for example, uh, some uh, tires, oil seal, or bearing. Bearings, uh huh. Filter, yeah, uh
1: huh. All the little things that you never think about inside your car or truck. How many parts go into a truck? So many.
4: <laughs> in the case of a truck, thousands of parts. Even the the for Toyota, if you go one by one, maybe hundreds of parts. So we found a bunch
1: of similar stories just today. Honda and Toyota announced they won't be able to restart their auto assembly lines yet because they can't get enough rubber and resin products from the affected areas.
2: Yeah, and I saw this. GM is laying off 59 workers in Buffalo, New York at their Tonawanda truck engine plant. Because GM is producing fewer trucks, because they can't get all the right material from Japan. And since they're producing fewer trucks, they need fewer workers.
1: So clearly there are lots of short-term disruptions all over the world. But we wanted to know, is this going to be a long-term economic problem? We got Arthur Alexander into a studio. He's an economist at Georgetown University. And for 10 years, he was the president of the Japan Economic Institute in Washington, D.C.
2: I told him I always feel a bit uncomfortable when there are these big disasters or crises in the world, and we jump in wanting to talk about money and how does it affect business. It's important to do, but I always am afraid it comes off badly. This is the, the discomfort that we feel, especially as economists. Uh,
0: we seem to take a particularly cold-hearted view that just confirms everyone's uh, feelings about economists. But you don't think it's cold-hearted? Uh, well, it is in a way, but you have to, you know, we acknowledge... And if I. I have watched carefully and closely uh, the videos of the tsunami and the disasters. And uh, uh, my wife says, you know, you're not going to be able to go to sleep after this. And it, it, it's utterly horrifying. Uh, and yet we step back away from that and go
1: through the numbers and we add it all up. And when you add it up, he says it looks like this is unlikely to be a long-term economic problem for Japan. He says this is actually the case with advanced economies. You can have an earthquake that shifts your nation by eight feet and the economy will barely register it.
0: One of the great things about modern economies is they have tremendous redundancy, resilience, uh, robustness to these sorts of things. And you can often quickly figure out ways to work around the disruptions that you, you do uh, uh, confront. I think the afflicted parts of the country are a really pretty small part of the total uh, nation, the total economy. Uh, the most hard-hit prefecture, equivalent to an American state is under 2%, something like 1.5% of the total output of the country, Uh, the same as uh, the population. So it's a small percentage of the total, and the robustness of the economy and the redundancies means that it takes days to weeks, usually, to reconfigure your production networks and uh, where you do things to work around the problems.
2: Is this on purpose when you say a modern economy? And and what you mean is a, a rich, industrialized nation. I mean, we saw in Haiti, obviously, that Haiti did not have these redundant systems. It did not have this resilience. And its GDP was hit severely. And still is hit. And still is hit. Yeah. They had, you know, really one or two functioning ports, both of which were severely damaged. They had one real international airport that was severely damaged. I mean, in other words... We're not talking about poor nations. We're talking about Japan, Europe, the United States, Canada.
0: That's right. When we talk about resilience in a modern, that's right. Economy. I think I think that uh, uh, sums it up. Uh, we are we're not Haiti. Japan is not Haiti. It has these these networks, these redundancies, these multiple fa- uh, facilities, and it's not planned. Uh, it's just the way things have developed. Uh, We have both business decisions and some political decisions to put in uh, multiple multiple systems that really have this tremendous robustness in the face of damage. Uh, And you couldn't plan it
2: better, Uh, but it happened kind of automatically. Alexander told us this interesting story about the Allies during World War II were trying to figure out what can we bomb inside Nazi Germany, obviously a big industrialized nation, that will disrupt their economy? Is there something we can bomb that'll just mess everything up?
1: And they thought and they thought and then they said, oh, we have it. Ball bearings. You need ball bearings. We'll take out the ball bearing factories.
2: And that was actually interesting for me to hear because my grandfather worked in the ball bearings industry during World War II in Worcester, Massachusetts. And to this day, he will proudly say you can't fight a world war without ball bearings. But even though we bombed Nazi ball bearings factories, they very quickly worked out other ways to get ball bearings, other ways to make ball bearings, and it just didn't have a major economic impact. And Arthur Alexander says, we see this again and again, at least with modern industrialized nations. They're disrupted by war, by natural disaster, and they Just get over it remarkably
1: quickly. He went through the history in Japan. It has an awful history with earthquakes. Uh, In the 1923 earthquake and a fire in Tokyo killed 142,000 people. The physical damage was something like a third of the country's entire GDP. In 1995, there was the massive Kobe earthquake, which hit a a major industrial area. Kobe is
0: something like the third largest port in the country – Uh, And it served both uh, uh, national shipping and it was a great international port. They had 35 containerized berths. They were all uh, knocked out of commission. And the highways that we saw, there were the the toppled uh, freeway uh, overspans that just came down. Uh, The railroads were twisted messes. Now, it turns out, further inland, there were other... Uh, networks, transportation networks that survived. And so a lot of the traffic was simply shifted over to those other arteries. This is the redundancy, that if one line goes down, there are other lines to take up the slack. And so production rapidly uh,
1: recovered. You sent me this uh, amazing chart showing GDP around the time of the Kobe earthquake, and uh, the title was um, Spot the Quake. Right. You You can't see it there.
0: Uh, you can't see it. And this is the amazing thing. Uh, even looking back at uh, 1923, when the damage, relatively speaking, was much greater, uh, it, the that year is kind of lost in the noise of so the ups and downs. Uh, and this is why I say that the current uh, event, the, the current disaster, uh, you won't be able to see very much of it. And I would think that a few years from now, looking back, uh, again, you might have some problems picking it out
2: of the noise. There's a bunch of reasons why a disaster like this doesn't really show up in the economic data. So the main economic data that people use is GDP, gross domestic product, which is a measure of all the economic activity in a given year. When something of value is destroyed, that doesn't necessarily show up in GDP. If there's a bridge that was built 10 years ago and it's still really valuable, people use it all the time, but it wasn't built this year, then it doesn't show up in
1: this year's GDP. And if it gets destroyed, they don't then take that out of GDP in the year it gets destroyed.
2: They don't take out the destruction of any assets. I saw this when I was doing economic stories on Katrina in New Orleans. Katrina destroyed an awful lot in New Orleans and Gulfport and throughout that region, but it didn't have a sizable impact on measurable GDP In some cases, disasters like this
1: can be positive for GDP. Japan right now is going to have to rebuild, right? And when you rebuild, you have to hire workers and and build houses and new roads, and that's going to add to GDP. The estimates are that repairing the damage is going to cost $100 billion, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. Here's Arthur Alexander again. The rebuilding itself is
0: investment. Uh, It will create a lot of economic activity to do that. The construction industry in particular, which has been hard hit for the last 10 years, will benefit greatly from this. But that will also create uh, income, profit. Uh, There are going to be workers out there doing that. It'll be like the stimulus program in the United States during the recession. Uh, It will create the jobs, the income, the consumption that will percolate through to the rest of the economy. Uh, So that will also add to GDP. So that's one one benefit in a way. The other side of that is how do you pay for it? Uh, Japan has huge uh, debt. Uh, It's bigger than ours
1: by a lot, right? Relative to the size of our economy.
0: Right. So no matter how you slice it, it's big. Uh, And paying for the recovery operations is going to require raising money somehow, either through debt or through increasing taxes and Japanese government has been talking about increasing taxes for the last 10 years. It never seemed to be the right time. This looks to be an ideal political time to go ahead and do something they should have been doing
2: anyway. So obviously the the key thing right now is, is the immediate loss of life, the immediate suffering, and, and, and there's no putting a pretty face on that. That is awful. But looking at it economically, as, as you know, as, as that's our part of the story at Planet Money, it sounds like, and I, I almost hate to use this word, but it sounds like there are positives and negatives. So, so negative is a big hit to wealth. Negative is is a short-term disruption to all sorts of productive activity. But and negative is an increase in debt for an already in, overly indebted nation. But then positives, there's. The stimulus effect, and you know, we've talked on the show about various debates between Keynesians and, and non-Keynesians over over the benefits of a stimulus. But let's just, for the sake of argument, put 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 that on the positive uh, side of the ledger. Um, so that means lots more construction workers get jobs. You know, lots of new you know products are being created to to serve that new construction, um, and then the government gets to make some tough decisions that some some responsible grown-up fiscal decisions that they've been avoiding for, for decades. Is it possible to do the math and come out with this as a net economic positive for Japan?
0: Uh, in terms of GDP and production flows, I, I think you might be able to say that, except for the loss of wealth. Uh, you could have been using that same, that same money, those same resources for doing other things rather than rebuilding. Um, so I think that you could say uh, and possibly over the, the course of the next year or two, we will see some uh, strong posit- positive benefits, including the c- construction of new highways, new railroads, new cell phone towers and telecommunications networks, uh, new housing for people uh, to replace uh, the old stock. Uh, and so we could end up with a more modern, more productive, more efficient uh, amount of uh, capital out there than we have
2: at the moment. Throughout putting this uh, podcast together, I just, I really just couldn't get Haiti out of my mind. You just can't imagine anyone talking about Haiti and and using words like resilience. I, I think this is just another example of of how different the world is if you're in a poor nation than a rich nation. I'm, a friend of mine was talking about in Chad how he was riding on roads that were destroyed decades earlier by some natural disaster, and they're still completely destroyed. So I, I don't think anyone's talking about silver linings right now but but it is a bit of a blessing that Japan seems to be able to get over this crisis much 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 more quickly than other countries would.
4: Anyway.
1: Know what other questions you have about economics in the news or behind the news. We are here to help. Send us email planetmoney at npr.org or you can contact us through Facebook.
2: And I do want to remind our listeners in the New York area if you're hearing this the week that it airs, Caitlin and I are going to have an evening with Sebastian Narcisse, our fabulous translator, driver, fixer from Haiti. He's coming to Brooklyn to show his beautiful photographs. And the three of us are going to talk about life in Haiti. David, are you coming? Yeah excellent. That's this Thursday, March 24th at six o'clock. It's going to be at the Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora Arts in Brooklyn. You can Google it or find a link on our website, npr.org slash money.
1: I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening.